Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother K. Godfrey. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. We would appreciate you clicking the like button and sharing each video so we can continue bringing you more fascinating content. Episode 3, Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial. And now, Kay Godfrey. Welcome back. It's good to be with you. We have a very special podcast today. We have a guest. I'd like to introduce to you my wife and companion, Sister Deborah Godfrey. And together, we're going to take you on a virtual tour of the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial Visitor Center. But before I do that, let me uh, just give you a little bit of a disclaimer. While we served on our mission, the missionary department of the church managed the historic sites. But during the course of the latter portion of our mission, that changed to the historical department of the church. And no doubt today, if you were to go to the Joseph Smith birthplace site, uh, you would find things perhaps a little different than the way we're going to present them today. But nevertheless, we're going to present them to you as we uh, presented them to thousands of people while we served. So, Sister Godfrey, would you like to begin our virtual tour? Okay. Welcome to the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial. My husband and I were blessed to have the opportunity to serve as missionaries at this historic site from January 2018 through June of 2019. The monument in the center was completed in December 1905 and was under the direction of Junius Wells. The Visitor's Center was completed in 1961. Prior to uh, the memorial, there was a memorial cottage located to the left of the memorial and was built over the home site of the Smith cabin. It was built at the same time the monument was constructed. As you enter the visitor center, you will see one of the most recognizable portraits of the Prophet Joseph Smith. In 1959, the church commissioned the well-known portrait artist Alvin Gittins to create this piece. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, the newspapers often criticized and maligned the prophet. However, occasionally some newspapers, such as the New York Herald, recognized Joseph as undoubtedly one of the greatest characters of his age, and noted that if his teachings had been followed, that they might change the destiny of the race. In 1851, Charles McKay of the London Morning Chronicle wrote that it cannot be denied that Joseph Smith was one of the most extraordinary persons of his age. Although Mr. McKay never had met the prophet personally, he did do extensive research on him. One of these projects happened while he was in London. He heard that an immigrant ship was planning to transport Latter-day Saint converts, and he had the opportunity to speak with them. Uh, he was able to speak with them as well as leaders of the group. The leaders placed at his disposal a whole barrel load full of written material. Next is the statue of Harvard Fairbanks, entitled Joseph Smith the Prophet Addressing the Faithful. The sculpture used the original death mask of the prophet as a guide to depict Joseph in his later years. In the prophet's left hand, he placed two works that were brought forth by the prophet, the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. 
In the other hand, a number of other writings and revelations that had not been published yet were placed. Mr. Fairbanks stated that he wanted to represent Joseph not only as a man who had been through many trying experiences, but as one whom God had chosen to restore the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many visitor centers contain the Howland family chart. It is used to emphasize the church interest in family history. It is also used to teach about Joseph Smith's ancestry. Joseph, as well as his wife, Emma Hale, were descendants of the Mayflower passenger, John Howland. Howland was an indentured servant to John Carver, a prominent Mayflower passenger. There were many significant storms during their journey. One nearly took the life of John Howland. During that storm, he was thrown overboard. William Bradford, the first governor of the Plymouth Colony, recorded, Quote, John was thrown overboard, but miraculously saved. It pleased God that John caught hold of the ropes used to raise and lower the upper and lower sails, which were hung overboard. He held on till he was eventually hauled up. This was providential for the church as well as the United States. If John had died at sea, we would not have the prophet Joseph Smith or his wife Emma. We would not have President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was very important during World War II, as well as both Presidents Bush's. And probably um, 10 million other people were also very grateful that he also made the trip safely. It is really a fascinating story. One of the most interesting stories we tell in the Visitor Center. And if you'll remember, we were surprised at how many people could relate to the Howland family and said that they were ancestors of the Howland family. Of course, being in Vermont and New Hampshire and the New England area, I suppose you'd expect that to be the case. That you would, and they are very interested in family history and genealogy there. They really were. All right, to continue our virtual tour of the Visitor Center, let's talk a little bit about Joseph Smith Sr. Joseph Smith Sr., born July 12, 1771 in Topsfield, Massachusetts. And again, you'll remember from a prior podcast, we talked quite a bit about Topsfield. Five generations of Smiths came from Topsfield. The Smith family attended the Congregational Church there in Topsfield. That slide may look familiar to you. And it was in the nearby Topsfield Cemetery that President George A. Smith would say the following at a dedication of the monument you see on the side. He said, I have traveled to Egypt and the Holy Land. I have seen the countries of Europe and met many of their most distinguished people, but I have encountered nothing that gives me more satisfaction than being here, here in the graveyard of my ancestors, on the ground where they walked and lived 300 years ago. It's a very inspiring place to visit. Aziel Smith, Joseph Smith Sr.'s father, uh, would leave Topsfield in 1791 seeking fortunes elsewhere. He'd never returned to the family homestead nor Topsfield. They purchased 83 acres in the Tunbridge Gore. What's a gore? A gore is improperly surveyed land that is sold cheap. And so Asia was able to pick up 83 acres of land, and that's where their family would begin. Shifting to the Mack family, Lucy Mack was born on July the 8th, 1775, in Gilsom, New Hampshire. Gilsom is considered Mack country. 
Mac country. Solomon, Lucy's father, and other Mac relatives are buried there in Gilsom in the Centennial Bond Cemetery. In 1795, Solomon Mack would move his family from Gilsom some 63 miles north to the town of Tunbridge, Vermont. Again, the town where the Smiths had moved to. They're moving there because earlier a couple of Solomon Mack's sons had gone there and were successful with a number of business ventures. So dad and mom wanted to come up, be near their family, and be a part of these businesses. It was at one of these business ventures that the Macs would meet the Smiths. Lucy and Joseph were married on January 24, 1796, there in Tunbridge. Joseph and Lucy would start their life together there in Tunbridge on property that would be given them as a wedding gift by Aziel Smith. This is a rather rare photo of what perhaps their home might have looked like at the time. In 1802, the family would move 16 miles west to the town of Randolph, Vermont, so that Joseph Sr. could try his hand at operating a general store. I suppose he was intrigued with the general store being run by the, Stephen Mack, uh, the son of Solomon there in Tunbridge. Unfortunately, this effort to run a general store would be the financial downfall of the Smith family. Why, you might ask, why would that be the case? And it all has to do with this plant, ginseng. Let me tell you the story. Joseph collected ginseng root in the forests of Vermont. Ginseng was used in everything from medicine to perfume. Joseph intended to sell his cash crop of ginseng in China. There was a merchant nearby there in Randolph by the name of Stevens who offered Joseph $3,000, that's a lot of money back then, for his uh, the route that he had collected. However, Joseph declined this offer, knowing very well that he could ship it to China and get as much as $4,500 for, the, for, his, uh, for his, his crop. Joseph contracted, however, with Mr. Stevens' son to accompany his cash crop as cargo to China. When he returned, when the Stevens son returned, unfortunately he reported to Joseph that his venture had failed and that all was lost. He did bring him a crate of tea. That was all he had to show for, uh, for his uh, ginseng. However, however, this young Stevens boy decided he's going to open up his own ginseng business at this particular time and went and hired eight to ten men to assist him in doing so. Well, Stephen Mack, Lucy's brother, suspected foul play was afoot. And so the records indicate that he extracted the information from the Stevens kid. We're not quite sure how he extracted the information, but nevertheless he did. Apparently, the ginseng did sell in China and it sold for a boatload of money but by the time the authorities were contacted, the Stevens fled the country, going to Canada with the money. And the Smiths found themselves destitute and in debt and would never, never own property outright again. After the defrauding, the Smiths moved back to their home, the, the old farm, you, you might say, in Tunbridge, Vermont, uh, and lived there from 1802 to 1804. 
They were then forced to sell their farm for half of its value. And then Lucy, who had received a $1,000 wedding dowry uh, from, her, from her brothers, Stephen Mack and John Mudgett, uh, they, were ha they were forced to have to give that up too, all to get out of debt from uh, those that Joseph Sr. found himself owing money to in Boston for goods that he had purchased to supply his, his general store. And so they sold the property, gave up the wedding dowry, and now found themselves very destitute. So with no place to go, the family moved to a, a little home, a little cabin, owned by Lucy's father, Solomon Mack. They would move to Sharon, Vermont in 1804 and stay there through 1807. Joseph was actually born in this little cabin, December 23, 1805. The slide you're looking at shows you Joseph Smith's birthplace location and then down the hill, the location of the home of Solomon Mack. All of this property now owned by the church and it constitutes the Joseph Smith birthplace site. The cabin the family would move into was 22 by 20. It was a clapboard sided, centrally fluted chimney type cabin with a half cellar. Perhaps looks something similar to this sketch. The site was archaeologically found because of two stones. The first, the front doorstep. The front doorstep faced southeast. And if you visit the site today, you can view this front doorstep. Uh, with stones surrounding it showing the approximate dimensions of the cabin. The other stone being the hearthstone, the heart of the home, the hearthstone. No doubt Joseph Jr. was born in front of this stone. The Smith family moved nine times during their 20 years of married life in New England, all relatively close to one another. In 1811, the family would make the biggest move, 24 miles away. They packed up their family, crossed the Connecticut River to West Lebanon. And in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, they would make their home. This is the home that they would live in. Now, this home was stood until 1967, when it was so dilapidated that they, that they tore it down. During the years of 1812-1813, while living in that home, a plague of typhoid fever just decimated the New Hampshire countryside. And typhoid fever, again, is bad water, bad food, that kind of thing. 6,400 people died in five months. All of the Smith family were infected to some degree. Sophronia, Joseph's sister, was deathly ill. The doctors had administered to her for 90 days with no sign of improvement, and they literally had given up. Lucy, seeing the plight of her nine-year-old daughter with death so near at hand, knelt in prayer and supplication to the Lord. Lucy's prayers were answered, and Sophronia recovered completely. However, the plague was not selective, and young seven-year-old Joseph Jr. was infected. His pain was initially looked at by Dr. Parkins. Excuse me. His pain was initially looked at by Dr. Parker. He thought that perhaps Joseph had a sprain of his left arm. It was anointed with liniment and left literally misdiagnosed. It was reevaluated two, two weeks later again by Dr. Parker, who now find a very large fever sore under his left arm. It was lanced and a quart of fluid was drained. 
With Joseph suffering from typhoid fever and having had an undrained abscess, bacteria now spread by way of the bloodstream into the tibia of his left leg. As soon as the abscess was drained, the pain from the left arm shot like lightning into the marrow of his left leg. The leg continued to swell for another three weeks. At this time, surgeons were called. An incision of eight inches was made between the knee and the ankle to relieve the pain, and it did somewhat, but it didn't stop the spread of infection. The leg was allowed to heal for the next two to three weeks, as it healed, however, the pain and the swelling returned. Hiram would spend hours sitting by the bed of Joseph, applying pressure to the leg to relieve the pain. Again, the surgeons were called and the same procedure was performed, and again the pain and the swelling returned. The infection in the bone was literally left unchecked for at least two months. The surgeons who made the initial incision were now discouraged and recommended that they amputate the leg. A council of additional surgeons was held to get perhaps what we call today a second opinion. This group included 11 individuals, Nathan Smith and his partner Cyrus Perkins and Dr. Stone, and a group of medical students from nearby Dartmouth Medical School. Dr. Smith asked for permission to perform an experimental operation that perhaps might save the boy's leg. Consent was given, and cords were brought in, cords to tie the boy down. Joseph refused to be bound. They offered him brandy and whiskey and wine to deaden the pain. There was no anesthesia, and Joseph said, no, no, I, I won't be bound, and I won't take any of those things. But what I will do is sit in the arms of my father for the entire operation, which he did. Joseph's mother was obviously escorted from the room. By all accounts, this was a very, very graphic, terrible operation. They drilled on each side of the infected area and with forceps snapped out three large pieces of infected bone. The pain involved in such an operation is the removal of the infected bone. If the dead bone is not completely removed from living tissue, a sharp pain would shoot through the, throughout the body. Joseph screamed loudly with the removal of the first piece of bone. With the removal of the third fragment, Lucy came running into the room where she saw, and I quote, Joseph sitting in a pool of blood. After fainting somewhat, she was escorted again from the room. Well, the operation finally came to a conclusion, and now it would take time to heal. Fourteen other small pieces of bone would work their way out of Joseph's leg over the next number of years, and he would forever have a slight limp. The surgery, however, was revolutionary. One of the very first successful operations for osteomyelitis, therefore preventing the amputation of Joseph's leg. Well, after the operation and with time needed to heal, the family felt the best way for this to happen would be sending Joseph to his uncle Jesse's home in Salem, Massachusetts for a season where he could recuperate near the seashore. From here, the family is going to move out of this low wetlands of West Lebanon, back across the Connecticut River and up into the hills above Norwich, Vermont. This home is located two and a half miles north of the Turnpike Road from the Norwich Village Commons. Although the home has been restored and remodeled, over the years, the front of the home 
has stayed basically as it looked in 1813 when Joseph Sr. rented this home. The land west of the home was farmed by Joseph Sr. Uh, Joseph had rented the home and 140 acres west of the home in an attempt to, uh, to farm the land. The Smith family had two successive seasons of crop failure. As such, Lucy was forced to have to paint and peddle oil cloths. Uh, they were very popular floor coverings during this time, and Joseph Sr. sold fruit from his orchard. These were, as I've mentioned, really, really difficult times for the Smiths. Joseph Sr. decided to plant one last time in hopes of success. However, if it ended in failure, he was committed to move the family out of New England, maybe maybe go to New York, where he had heard that uh, wheat crops were being raised in abundance in New York, and some of his brothers had migrated there. The result of that next year was the same as the first two, total failure. In fact, the year of 1816 is known as the year without a summer, or 1800 and frozen to death. Snow fell in June and in July, and this phenomenon was due to a change in weather patterns that was caused by the violent volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. This volcanic eruption has the distinction of being the largest eruption ever recorded. It also has the little known distinction of having played a small role in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now this is kind of an interesting side fact. The eruption is noted to have occurred on either April 5th or April 7th of 1815. Depending on the sources you use and what constitutes, I suppose, an eruption. If April 7th, 1815 is used as the date and time zones are, are worked into the formula, it's interesting to note that Mount Tambora erupted April 6th, 1815. For us as members of the church, that's, that's pretty significant. When Tambora erupted, 4,000 feet of the summit of that mountain disappeared and a cauldra of 15 miles across was created. Estimates on the amount of debris that was thrown into the air and destroyed, literally, um, are something along the lines of 36 cubic miles of, of matter disintegrated. The shoreline of the town of Tambora dropped 18 feet, and the explosion was noted over a thousand miles away. The greatest damage occurring within about a 300-mile radius where total darkness occurred for three days, much like the darkness recorded in the 8th chapter of 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon. The hot air rising from the mountain caused hurricane winds to converge from all directions, drawing up entire buildings and all forms of life. This, with other factors, I suppose, caused the Smith family to say, enough is enough. We're going to leave New England and we're not going to return. Now I'm going to turn the time back to my wife and she'll go ahead and pick up our story. Joseph loved and cherished his wife and family. This portrait entitled My Beloved Emma is also by Liz Lemon Swindle.
It shows what a private moment might have been like between Joseph and Emma. One of my favorite quotes of Joseph is attached to this picture. And I have to tell you, it took me half of my mission to be able to read this quote without crying. They had been separated for a period of time as Joseph was hiding in the 70s hall, trying to avoid one of the many individuals who were constantly pursuing him. Emma was brought to see him, and this is what he said. With what unspeakable delight and what transports of joy swelled my bosom when I took by the hand my beloved Emma, she that was my wife, even the wife of my youth, and the choice of my heart. Sister Godfrey, if I could stop you for just a second, I would like to uh, to share a thought relative to this portrait that's behind us. Uh, this particular portrait was given my wife and I by Jane Arnold, a very accomplished artist from uh, from the Vermont, New Hampshire area. Um, it portrays a very beautiful, beautiful Emma Smith. Um, we're we're Emma people. We, we love Emma dearly. And I really think this personifies her, her beauty and her look and perhaps ties very nicely into this particular uh, quote that my wife has just shared with you. The next room is the meditation room. The predominant feature of this room is the life-size bronze statue by D.J. Bodden. This sculptor also used a this sculpture also utilized the death mask of Joseph to create the likeness of the prophet. It has been said in the Bible that, By your fruits ye shall know him. This is a timeline from the birth to death of the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. In many of his important events and accomplishments are shown during his lifetime, culminating, of course, when he and his brother Hiram were martyred in Carthage jail in June of 1844. Below are samplings of scriptures and teachings of the prophet, as well as biographies and histories written by scholars about his life. In the back corner are portraits of the next four prophets of the church, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow. They are depicted because they all knew the prophet personally, and they have each left their testimonies about his divine calling. There is also a portrait of our current prophet, Russell M. Nelson. I might interject here that it took us a while to get President Nelson's portrait. <laughs> For a good portion of our mission, we had President Monson there. But our particular historic site is a long ways from Salt Lake City. <laughs> but eventually, President Nelson did arrive, and we were grateful for that. Were that we he did. The final exhibit is a portrait and sculpture of the Savior and Joseph Smith's testimony of him as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 22 through 24. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, that we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him, even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing the record that he is the only begotten Son of the Father, and that by him and through him and of him the worlds were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters of God. Sister Godfrey, as we conclude our virtual tour of the Visitor Center, and I very much appreciate you joining me. It's so nice to have you here, and it was so wonderful to serve a mission there with you. We have this picture depicting the uh, Joseph Smith Memorial Monument, uh, a winter scene. Um, is there anything in particular you would like to share 
relative to winter in Vermont? Oh, well, being from Utah, we thought that we truly understood what snow and cold was like. But Vermont took it to a completely different level for us. Um, and it was uh, very difficult. Uh, snow was shoveled a lot as part of our mission. And uh, we usually ra- walked down tunnels of about five or six feet on either side. You really did. But the seasons are seasons in Vermont. Uh, you, you know when spring is here. Uh, you know when spring in Vermont is here because of mud season. Mud season follows winter, and truly it is a season with signs depicting you will not go up this dirt road during mud season. And following mud season is the inevitable fly season. Mm. Fly season. Biting, nasty little flies accompany the mud season, and it's not until true spring happens that uh, that some of these things go away. So you've got a beautiful spring, you've got a gorgeous summer, uh, fall is is indescribable. The colors in Vermont and New Hampshire during during fall are, are breathtaking. And then you have our winter. As we conclude our tour with this particular picture, I would like to quote to you something from E.T. Sullivan. This is what E.T. Sullivan said once. He said, when God wants a great work done in the world or a great wrong righted, he goes about it in a very unusual way. He doesn't stir up his earthquake or send forth his thunderbolts. Instead, he has a helpless baby born, perhaps in a simple home of some obscure mother. And then God puts the idea into the mother's heart, and she puts it into the baby's mind. Then God waits. The greatest forces in the world are babies. I want to thank you for joining us today on our virtual tour of the Visitor Center at the Joseph Smith Birthplace Site, as it's now referred to as. Um, And again, I want to thank my wife for joining me. I'm going to give you a little bit of a... um, a scoop on our next podcast because it's going to be something very special. While on our mission, my wife and I had an opportunity to do many different things, literally many, many different things. One of them was the in-depth research on the monument that you see on the on the picture in front of you. And so I'm going to tell you its story. And I've entitled the story, One Man's Search for the Perfect Stone. So until then... Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com. And coming soon are six hours of DVDs following the footsteps of Joseph. We appreciate you, our dear listening friends.